Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Dining Hall Digest. We're coming at you now as official University of Notre Dame graduates, which is quite exciting. And we thank everyone for taking the time to be here with us today. For those of you new to the podcast, we welcome you into this space where we try to cultivate and replicate those great three-hour dining hall discussions or long campus walks that you would have in a 20 to 25-minute podcast. So thank you so much for joining and welcome back, Nick. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Elizabeth? I'm good. I am really happy because I have had the opportunity to see Nick from a safe social distance a few different times this week, which has made me so, so happy. <laughs> yeah. And then I tried to jump five steps and tumbled and scarred myself, both emotionally and physically. But And, and physically, but... But it's healing. So, well, slowly, but... It's healing. And a, a priest came out and gave us towels. My to TA for my theology okay. class. Yes. Um, yeah. He did know me. And it was embarrassing. So anyways, so we are recording this podcast on June 2nd during, I would say, one of the darker times in the American conversation that I've known during my life. Uh, We're gripped by a pandemic that is killing thousands of people, but disproportionately people of color. Uh, We are in the middle of an economic recession that is hurting uh, millions of people. And uh, now we're, I believe, a week into a nationwide protests over the the murder of George Floyd, um, but also recognizing the killing of Breonna Taylor and uh, many other unarmed Black people in America. And we've been setting up this podcast for a while, so I want to kind of explain the topic and explain what we're going to talk about. So uh, May was Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, uh, and I really wanted to talk to some of our friends about what they thought about being Asian American um, in this moment, especially in the middle of a pandemic that the president has called the Chinese virus and amid uh, rising levels of Asian American harassment in the nation. But because of current events, we also want to talk about how Asian Americans are situated in a fairly unique position in the uh, racial conversation, the conversation about race in America. Uh, So for the first part of this podcast, we're going to be talking about Asian American identity, how we think about it. And in the second part, we're going to be talking about uh, what kind of role as allies Asian Americans can play in the fight for justice for Black lives in America. And I think it's going to be really great because we have three amazing guests with us today. We asked all of our guests for intros that they would want to be introduced as. Our first guest is one of my best friends, my first friend at Notre Dame, uh, Lauren Jin, who is an expert on flying in dreams. So welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thank you. And next up, we have one of my first friends at Notre Dame, Nita Romani, who we are deciding to introduce as a elitist water supporter in that she prefers only bougie water, specifically LaCroix, but doesn't really ever drink water anyway, which we're slightly concerned about. So welcome to the podcast, Nita. Thanks. (laughs) And our third guest is a friend who is neither my first nor my last friend at Notre Dame. (laughs) But is a very special friend of mine, uh, Sean Wu, and we are describing him as using an octopus as a talking stick slash piece. And I would love to know what's what kind of you are showing a plush octopus on the Zoom right Ooh. now. Mm-hmm. Indeed, this is um, this is Joanne, the talking piece. 
for Peace Circles. I like that a lot. Where'd you get the name Joanne from? Uh, so, you know, I met Joanne. Joanne is actually an older lady at the South Bend Farmer's Market um, that I became friends with, and she gave me this, or I named it after her. <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean, for showing us Joanne. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start talking about Asian American identity, our topic for this week. To kind of kick us off, people have a lot of different social identities, um, including gender, including your occupation as a student, as a professional, as well as your race. And different identities can be important to people in different contexts. So my question is, what does being Asian American mean to you? Do you typically think of yourself as Asian American or do you think of yourself in terms of ethnicity, in terms of gender? And uh, Sean, could you start us off? Yeah, my identity as an Asian American comes from, I moved to the U.S. from China when I was four years old. Um, And so my being Asian American is one of my first identities and I think continues to be one of my major identities. And I think I would describe it as partially sometimes being having, feeling like you're in two worlds with one foot in in one and the other foot in the another um, constantly. And so there's Yeah, there's different times, um, depending on what type of people I'm around, which communities, there's different ways of thinking, or I I guess, interacting with people that comes with that. And so I think for me, I identify as very much Asian American, but also I would categorize it slightly more Asian um, than perhaps some um, of my other Asian American friends as I've, I've went back to China for school in middle school. And so and back home, we speak in Chinese. And so a lot of that culture and language remains with me. Thank you. Um, Lauren, what are your thoughts? So my mom was born in Korea and my dad was born in China. And then they met in the U.S. when they were and they moved to the U.S. when they were nine and met there when they got older. And so they would probably categorize themselves as a little more American um, and are more comfortable speaking English. So my life has been not with language, like culturally Asian, but more of like traditions, early traditions and things like that, some foods. And then we went back when I was in second grade to live in Korea for um, about a semester to a year. And that was where I just, I don't know, I also felt at home there. And I don't really remember language being a problem, but maybe it's because second graders don't really use a lot of words with each other. I remember like stickers were the ways to make friends with people. So yeah, I <laughs> I feel like I still have both worlds within me, but um, I think I'm definitely more comfortable with English and things like that. Thank you. Mita? Yeah, I mean, I think the Asian American label, you know, as the child of two immigrants who came from India, I think is is kind of a complicated story to tell because, you know, we are South Asian. And I think for a, a large part of my childhood, you know, most of us in you know the South Asian American community didn't realize that Asian American actually applied to us. So I think for a really long time, you know, that was a struggle. We would always just say we were Indian American. And then, you know, when finally, I think, in late middle school and in and into my high school years when Asian American actually became I think a more common label for for South Asians um only then did did I kind of feel at home calling myself Asian American and then well into college you know I feel like I've I've really come to accept that I think most of us still prefer Indian American and kind of feel more of more of kind of at home with that label and you know, from from my experience and all of my, you know, Indian American friends, 
there's a, there's a big duality. I think most of us don't feel, I think this is a common problem with many people who, who are the children of immigrants, but most of us don't feel kind of Indian enough to be Indian or American enough to be American. You know, most of us were raised where it's not even like a first language was English or first, second language was English. It was like we kind of learned Hindi and English or, you know, whatever your local Indian language was and English at the same time. But we're raised in a house where, you know, most of the food is Indian food. Most of us, you know, are pretty, you know, adherent followers of, of the Hindu religion. So I think the Asian American label has been something we've kind of adopted over the years. And for that reason, I think my parents and and even, you know, some of the newer generations in America who've come from from the Indian subcontinent and kind of South Asia, South, South Asian cultures in general, feel less comfortable with the Asian American kind of identifier. I mean, when like I first had to fill out like we took a standardized test in like sixth grade I like didn't know which bubble to fill because I didn't think I was Asian American you know early in middle school it's something we've come to come to accept I think yeah and I to just add on to that I remember when the movie Crazy Rich Asians came out and people are like this is incredible representation for Asian Americans but for like East Asians (laughs) like for East Asian Americans not for not not necessarily for South Asians and I think Mm -hmm. that, that South Asians have been um excluded from the conversation especially since in crazy rich asians the only representation of south asians are like as servants Mm -hmm. yep all of you kind of touched upon this and i do want to and and mita specifically said the kind of tension between indian and american uh one very common theme in a lot of asian american art for better or for worse is assimilation you all said that you traveled back to countries um where your parents grew up how did your idea shift when you went back there? Did you feel more American than Asian there? How did your ideas of your identity shift when you went back to, when you, not back to, but when you went to those countries? Uh, I personally found things that made more sense, finally. Like how the moment you walk through the door, if there is a grandparent present, you like run over to them and bow and say hello. And if they ever ask you for anything, you stop immediately and go help them. And I, I that's just so heartwarming. Um, and I know like nursing homes to me exist more in the U.S. and they kind of make it makes me a little sad. So there are definitely some cultural things that I loved. Yeah. Uh, Sean? Yeah, I think for me, it's one of the bigger um, realizations of that has been more recently. During my junior year of of college, I went to study abroad um, in the Middle East. And I think it was right after that, I went on to do an internship in Beijing over the summer. And I think it was that transition from seeing Palestinian culture and the way that family is so important there, learning about it there, and then going to Beijing right after to live with my grandparents. That was a big realization of how how similar they were um, in terms of like the family centered culture and also a realization that in a sense like I've been I've been trying to assimilate so hard out of that I forgot like it was it wasn't like a realization that I was trying to um, like turn away from that until I I got these two experiences that put things back into perspective and there's a lot of I think judging of sometimes people who are like international Chinese students from Asian American students. And I think part of that comes from like this thing that we talked about of like wanting to assimilate and distance from like this thing that our parents were or like a looking down that I didn't realize was a little bit within me that um, until this summer. Yeah. Uh, Misa, any thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of assimilation, so, I mean, we we used to just go back to India for summers, I mean, mostly just to see family and grandparents, and the trips have become, you know, less and less frequent as as me and my brother have gotten older, but the, the more we went back and the older we got, it was harder for us to kind of relate to people and relate to our family there because I think one of one of the reasons just being you know you know blunt about it is you know my family is lighter skinned our heritage is is Sindhi which is from you know a northern part of India which is now actually part of Pakistan so our communities is lighter skinned so just going back to India and meeting cousins or, or friends family old family friends that have darker skin we get called out a lot for addressing Americans speaking like Americans mm-hmm. um, particularly me and my brother I think my parents kind of don't don't see as much of that but I think it's it was much harder to relate to the culture while being in India to some extent and then there's a dichotomy of like when we're here you know we do a lot of super Indian things like just just to say it like that we eat Indian food in my house seven days a week I celebrate all of the religious holidays and then at the same time our parents want us to do all of the American things too. I know so many Indian kids, their parents want them to assimilate to the point like play baseball. What's the most American thing you can think of? I know some families who've in the Hindu religion, like beef is prohibited. And just for assimilation purposes, like their parents won't eat it, but they let their kids eat beef. So I think assimilation has been a huge tension throughout the South Asian community um, because some parents really, really want their kids to assimilate. Whereas others, you know, want to kind of hold on to the homeland, even though in some cases the homeland may be more progressive than even America is. They, they still want to hold on to, you know, the homeland it was when they were there. So assimilation is definitely a very, you know, controversial topic. Thank you all so much for sharing your experiences and insights. We're going to take a little break here and then continue on with our conversation when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. And again, thank you to all of our guests for uh, being so open about your stories and sharing that with us before. I'm so grateful for learning a bit more about all of your experiences. And as Nick mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we kind of want to shift the conversation to what's going on right now. It's June 2nd, 2020. Yesterday, we had our president, Donald Trump, stand up and more or less declare the Insurrection Act and trying to send out the National Guard against protesters across the country who are protesting for the safety and well-being of Black lives, something that our nation has constantly been fighting for. We would love to kind of shift that conversation and ask each of you, what does it mean and what does it look like to be an ally for Black lives, given your identity and your positionality in this fight. So maybe let's start with uh, Nick. Yeah, I didn't talk during the Asian American identity part, but I am half Japanese, and but I pass as white in, I would say, a majority of situations, if not a super majority of situations. And so I have, I would, I would say, a, a good amount of privilege. I'm able to walk the streets and not get accosted by police officers. But I wanted to just make a few notes about like Asian American as a label and as an identity. It actually came out of like the 1960s, like right after the civil rights movement. Asian American was a movement on college campuses. It was like it was called the yellow power movement. And while it was like somewhat exclusive, especially towards uh, Filipinos at that time, 
it kind of revolutionized how Asian Americans thought about imperialism, thought about race, and aligned them with people, other people of color in America. Now it's much more of a kind of bureaucratic term where it's like on forms, and maybe that's how people form their identities is like, oh, like I'm Asian American on a form, and thus I'm Asian American. But I just wanted to like note the history of that term in terms of what does being an ally for Black lives look like. I remember seeing there were two Medium articles circulating over social media this last week about ways that Asian Americans could be allies and ways Asian Americans can kind of uh, interrogate anti black racism in their own communities. I think those are pretty good ideas. I honestly think that being an ally means showing up, but also checking in on friends uh, who might be affected and trying to, in some form, uh, sympathize. We just came out of a period where there were a lot of news reports about increased harassment of Asian Americans by just American citizens and trying to understand what that looks like for African Americans in a different and I would say more severe context is I think important for myself. Sean, do you have anything? (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think going off of what you said, Nick, one of the first things that comes to mind is this incredible amount of solidarity that I think about this conversation and think about before how I thought it was like a black and white conversation and never really found my place as an Asian American um, until kind of first kind of with owning my own identity and then finding the space within that in this course we took together called Realities of Race. I think with the solidarity part, part, it's super, it's been super important for me in these past few days and weeks with hearing about stories of Asian Americans and Asian people being being beat and um, yelled at for, for coronavirus related incidents, um, having friends um, of our family like say, oh, a person just like threw a stick at me and like yelled stuff at me um, about how you brought this virus to, um, to America. And a few days ago, like in my own neighborhood, I saw like, I heard some young kids and not so young kids say, overheard them say, oh, they're Chinese, like they make coronavirus. Um, And so this intense city of like, and like, I've never really felt this intense solidarity walking down the street until with the pandemic of like, not knowing what people will think or act towards me due to like, how I how I look, you know, my outward appearance. And my parents have been like saying since the pandemic started, like, don't go outside too late. Like, we've never, <laughs> they've never, that's never crossed their mind before. So solidarity in a, a deep sense um, is one I'd say. And then the other one I touch on briefly is just to speak out because as sometimes, at least within Chinese culture, there's like a cultural tendency to be like, oh, don't like bother with stuff. You're just going to get in trouble. Like just stay silent, go about your own business. Don't worry about other people's things. But I, I think the thing I would say is we're, it's not like an us and them thing. Like they're like in trouble and like we're fine. It's like we're all together. And if we don't stand up for our um, friends and brothers and sisters, then it impacts us too. Thanks. Lauren and Elizabeth, we, the three of us were just at the prayer service last night um, that Notre Dame put on and I was wondering if you could you two could talk a little bit about how faith informs solidarity how faith informs allyship Lauren do you want to go first sure at the end after Father Jenkins spoke another priest came up and he said so we've been blessed with a lot more people than we expected and all the candles might not be enough for you so please Um, be aware of that and try to carry these candles as a community. And I just thought the way he said that was beautiful and 
in a way it was its own metaphor. Yeah, echoing everything kind of that Lauren said there, I know at least for me, I am trying to educate myself as much as I can. I am white Irish Catholic, and it's just my job now, I think, to sit back and and listen and take it all in and to do that work and then to also educate my white peers and to stand up when things are saying or are said incorrectly. And I think that faith plays an instrumental role in all of that. Having studied peace studies at Notre Dame, you begin to realize that a lot of the most successful nonviolent social movements throughout history are rooted in faith, in this idea of theological and redemptive love of forgiveness, mercy, and reconciliation. And I, for one, am truly the strongest proponent of nonviolent social action that's rooted in love and love that oftentimes comes from a religious understanding. I don't think you have to be religious to engage for justice and peace in this way, but I do think that even when looking at Dr. King's movements, you know, a lot of his teachings are based in uh, the Christian uh, story of the Sermon on the Mound and the Beatitudes and who we're called to be and how we're called to love, be merciful and, and act for justice towards each other. So I think that faith is essential when we're trying to work for true nonviolence and justice in our world. Thank you. Mita, one aspect that's pretty unique for Asian Americans as a racial group in America is that we're the only racial group that is majority foreign born. You were talking about how your parents immigrated here. How do you engage with conversations about race? I know that I personally learned about the civil rights movement in American schools. How do you talk about American race or do you with your parents and and with, I guess, if you do at all with your wider family? I think, yeah. So, I mean, like you said, we, we really learned about the the civil rights movement in in american schools in in history class and that doesn't really give you a a really like deep grasp of of everything that has happened in american history i think just just learning out of a textbook and in fourth through sixth grade doesn't really do everything justice and so i think it's it's been a lot of just trying to educate ourselves as kind of this this first generation that was born in america and and telling our parents some of the history because to be frank you know there are so many parents who've come here and know so little you know i mean when i say so little i mean like really bare bones but even just if you think about it i mean asian americans especially south asians i I can speak towards benefited greatly from the civil rights movement i mean we all came i mean most american Asian American families, South Asian American families who came here, came here after 1965. I mean, we we benefited greatly from being able to come here after 1965. And the people who came, you know, came because they had the wealth and the education to come. That's where a lot of the for the South Asian community, the model minority stuff comes in because it was the wealthiest, the most educated families in India who were able to send people here. Um, that's not the case for everybody. I, I'll, I'll say that right now. But I think so having those conversations with our parents and, and our greater family, I think it's rare, but it's becoming more common. Um, and I also think it's our job to kind of correct correct our parents when they say something that they may not mean to be harmful or they may not intend for it to be wrong, but they just don't truly understand, you know, the the gravity of the situation here, you know, the history of the situation here. Um, why people are speaking out in the ways they're speaking out and why things have really, you know, come to the point where they are, you know, we're on day eight, day seven of, of nationwide protests, why certain things, you know, the president has said were really inflammatory. My parents had no idea, you know, when the looting starts, when the shooting, the you know, that's when the shooting starts. They didn't realize, you know, that was 
a phrase that comes out of old race, race tensions, race riots, but it's our job to kind of guide them in that direction. And it's our job as South Asians. I think a lot of a lot of South Asians have appropriated black culture for a long time. I mean, there's been a huge discussion in my generation in the South Asian community of, you know, predominantly South Asian fraternities using the N word widely and defending that use of the n-word and it's been something that no one has checked them on for years now and you know with all of this blowing up people are starting to say you can't be doing that and there's pushback from from some of my own south asian peers that no we have the right you know we're a minority but that doesn't that's not fair i think to that community, to our own community, for us to be appropriating Black culture in that way, that's not being a good ally. You know, we need to be pushing more to have these tough discussions with our families, with our peers, you know, with other groups, other Asian communities, other minority communities. I, I think I think as a South Asian community, there's so much more we can be doing that we're not. And that's only starting to become apparent that we should be doing. Thank you. Last question. So um, I'm going to come back to Elizabeth and Lauren. So I, I asked about the prayer service. So one of the things that I was frankly frustrated with was there was a lot of rhetoric and speaking about we need to change things. And I appreciated that. But for instance, like institutions like Notre Dame can change things, they're institutions with policies. And so, and you, we see things like the the USCCB's pastoral letter, the Open Wider Hearts pastoral letter against racism, which is very well intentioned. And there is obviously a lot of thought that went into this, but it seems like the Catholic response to racism kind of stops after personal conversion and trying to root out the hatred in our hearts, which obviously is important. But I wonder where the kind of structural analysis and, and structural change comes from. I am not a super religious Catholic, but I know that both of you are much more engaged in communities of faith. What do you what do you make of this? Elizabeth, do you want to go first? Ooh, sure. <laughs> I know it's ah. It's such a big question and it's something that's really challenged me in my own faith life because I've always viewed my Catholicism and my Catholic faith as one that pushes me to be an advocate for justice and for peace. And quite frankly, a lot of Catholics don't read scripture the same way that I do and they don't pull those lessons, which is frustrating to me. And that's what's challenging when you invoke faith into a social movement or to anything because people have such different perspectives on the same text and the same words. And that's going to complicate it for sure. But I think at a school like Notre Dame, we're really uniquely positioned to do a lot better. I mean, first off, we require all students to take two semesters of theology. So why are we just having students take the baseline theological classes? Why are we not showing students, hey, you know, the, the Catholic Church, specifically Black Catholics, were really instrumental in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and here's how. Why are we not diving into those aspects of our Catholic faith a bit more than we are into just reading the text? I think putting faith in into action is really critical. The Center for Social Concerns does a great job of that on campus. I think if everybody was the CSC, the school would look a lot different. And I really wish, yeah, yeah Sean is Sean's giving the pump fist over here. <laughs> the CSC has it right. It says, you know, Catholicism is radical and powerful and can push for change in this really good structural way that we need. But if we can't get everybody on board with that common understanding of it, then we're not going to move forward. But I would love to hear what you think about it, Lauren. 
Wow, I think that was everything that was in my heart and in my mind just perfectly articulated. (laughs) (laughs) It was a jumble, but thank you. (laughs) I completely agree. I think investing that much in the Center for Social Concerns is a good start. That was one of the main reasons why I came to Notre Dame and having seminars, having summer programs, having teachers and mentors who just change our lives in this way. And also having like experiential learning, like the prison seminar and things like that are great steps. But I totally agree that you can, Notre Dame can do things through required courses, like requiring um, it, maybe like a Catholic social teaching course or just straight up like poverty studies, peace studies, because I would say that God is very much behind poverty and peace and, and we're against, like, poverty. against poverty. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-poverty. <laughs> Just to clarify. Yes. Uh, Yeah. But I would like to know from you, Nick, like more what else you think Notre Dame could do besides course requirements. Yeah. So I have have a lot of ideas because I was university policy for student government and I am very jaded. Yeah, he was. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean... In terms of policy, so I just I just read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, which is a quite a good book, and he talks about policies a lot. And so I want to focus on policies, and there are obviously symbolic things, for instance, the murals in the main building, which is evidence of a, of a racist past and present, frankly, that those are, and that I believe is symbolic, and that's not a policy. A policy that Notre Dame has that they could change is disinvest from private prisons in the pensions for faculty and staff. Private prisons essentially profit from punishment that disproportionately affects like people of color in America. They can invest that money socially in a socially responsible way. They could, for instance, get rid of legacy admissions, which because of the way that it's structured, disproportionately benefits um, white folks, uh, white folks, because that's who was allowed to come to Notre Dame. And so I, I, I think those are two steps. I'm always an advocate for amending the non-discrimination clause, which would help LGBTQ folks and give them equal status. Um, at the university in terms of employment, employment and admission. But I, I think that those are all structural policy changes um, that the university has been pushed for. These are not new things. These are things that people are and have pushed for in the past that if they really want to, in colloquial terms, put their money where their mouth was, like they're talking about change. They're talking, they're talking about praying for change. Well, you can do change. Father Jenkins can do change. If they if they really believe in I and I believe that they sincerely do. I believe that they sincerely do believe that things need to change. I think that they might have some blinders up and I think that these are things that they could. So <laughs> we are probably way better time limit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we usually like to ask all of our guests something. This is like we said at the top of the episode, a very hard time, but mental health is also very important for everybody, especially because we're supposed to be kind of sheltering in place and quarantining um, at this moment. So we like to ask our guests, like, what's something that's made you happy, whether that's a piece of pop culture, whether that is like an encounter with a friend or an encounter with nature. Uh, One of the happiest people I know, Lauren, would you like to start us off? I was wandering around campus um, listening to classical music, and once I turned off my phone and decided to listen to the birds, I realized... I heard piano music coming from a dorm 
when I started following the piano music, I realized there was dear Elizabeth Boyle sitting on a bench. And I had actually been looking for her vaguely. So this was great. (laughs) And we just had a great conversation. And I so appreciate her questions, her answers, and her her joy, too. Thanks. Uh, So we... It's hard to get haircuts in, in quarantine, and my uh, my little brother has been asking for a haircut for a really long time, and one day he just couldn't wait anymore, and I was on a call, and he was like, hey, mom, can I get a haircut? And so my mom gave him a nice haircut, like, it was great. She went upstairs to get some, like, baby powder and stuff, and then came downstairs and sees my brother with, like, a with, like his pair of scissors and, like, just straight up cut, like, a straight line across his, his hair in the front. And she just like burst out laughing. And like, when I, I saw the picture, it was like hilarious. I could not stop laughing. Um, and it was really great. But then he, he was like, oh, shoot. And my mom was like, oh, just wait till your brother's done. He can like help you fix your fix this, right? I was like, no, I'm going to fix it myself. So the end result was he uh, got a buzz cut and now he's bald. <laughs> so we're still laughing at him for the like past few days we've been like staring at him and like looking away and forgetting that he like he's <laughs> just like bursting and laughing again every time we look at him that's great oh my god i really sympathize with the haircut thing my hair's never been strong before um mita something happy from this past week or um, weeks is, is it sad it's taking me this long i mean like i think just like little things for yourself i really like you know every day you know putting on a song and just kind of jumping around like you know it's just some you got to do something to keep yourself one active and two like keep a smile on your face when when it just seems like the world's a little dark right now um especially in my house with my dad you know being in the hospitals all day you know it's I think it's nice I think my mom started to enjoy it a little bit you're just putting on a song that both of us just kind of fool around to even if it's just us walking around and you know flailing our arms it's it's something to to purpose up for the day i think thanks um elizabeth well i was gonna say what lauren said because that made my whole day so that first off second my parents are coming into town tomorrow and that'll be the first time in like five months that i've seen them which is just really exciting for me wow yeah. Woo! Quarantine, <laughs> baby. are they bringing you bagels are they oh shoot I got to text them that I'm going to do that right after this. Thank you. I'm fresh for those who don't know. I'm from Long Island. You mention it like once a podcast. So. I, I got to let the people know, okay? That's in a very essential part of who I am as a human being. Can I just add that she said she was listening to New York City sounds like the subway? Lauren <laughs> was like, what do you do on your walks around campus? I'm like, well, I have a podcast of like the subway sounds and people getting into taxis in the rain and grunting. Village. That's when you knew I was crazy. Oh my god. <laughs> We're fine. It's fine. But Nick, what is something that's bringing you joy? What is bringing me joy? So I've spent most of my coronavirus instituted sheltering in place in California, which was great because I got to spend time with my family. But I am now in South Bend. I have been living with Katie Hyatt and now Lauren uh, moved in a few days ago and Sean's moving in soon. And it's going to be great. Probably not recommended 
but I really <laughs> missed my friends. And I think I am slowly getting some kind of sense of closure, mm-hmm. um, which we talked about last time with my time at Notre Dame. So I'm feeling happy, but also content and and satisfied, I think. Yeah, I'd love that's so good. And I think I'm just happy that everyone's finding joy. And I wanted to give a little shout out. Um, I think a big thing we talked about today is, you know, it's important to think deeply about these issues in our world, but then it's equally as important to act on them. So this coming Friday, there's going to be a protest in South Bend by the Black Lives Matter chapter. And I know a big group of those of us on the call right now will still be in South Bend. So I encourage all of you folks listening who are there to come out, join us, know that you have friends who are going to be there. And for those who want to get involved, do it. Now's the time to act. And I'm just very grateful for all of you and helping me to think a bit more deeply about what's going on in our world. So thank you. And thank you, Elizabeth, for doing the same for us, of course. We really want to thank our guests. Thank you, Sean, Lauren, and Mita. Your insights were thank you guys. And for everybody listening, we really want to hear from you, what you think about allyship. And uh, if you're Asian American, what do you think about Asian American identity as well? Anything we've talked about today, leave us a voice message. It's a pinned tweet on our Twitter. Our Instagram will presumably be set up at some point. Uh, That's my fault <laughs> still, but yes. And we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Thanks.